there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hey, Dell, give me a high life. <laughs> Is that all you'll be having for breakfast? Hey, if I wanted judgment, I'd stay home and get drunk in front of the wife. I'm just messing with you. If we turned folks away for drinking before noon, we'd be out of business. <clears throat> he hasn't come by today, has he? Who's that? Oh, come on. You know. Ken McElroy. Uh, you're not gonna leave if he does, are you? I lose business every time his truck's parked outside. He shot two men already. Nobody wants to be the third. What's that son of a bitch gotta do to get what's coming to him? He's been stealing our livestock for years. Raping our women, threatening and shooting old men, and he's still walking free. It's his shyster lawyer, McFadden. How does a guy like that sleep at night? Very comfortably, I'm sure. In a town far away from Skidmore, and Ken McElroy, too. Oh, damn. That's Ken Silverado. Oh. And he's got that lovely wife with him, too. Well, good morning. Don't let me interrupt your coffee. What you got your wife carrying a rifle for, Ken? And the bayonet. Oh, this old thing? That came to do some business. Don't folks buy and sell guns around here, Dell? Set it on the counter, then. You know, I'm not quite ready to part with it yet. Feeling like a drink first. Honey, pay Dell for a six-pack and bring me one at this end of the bar. Well, you heard him. Where's the beer? Huh. Why so quiet? What were y'all talking about before I came in here? Nothing, really. You know damn well you were talking bullcrap about Ken. Calm down, honey. This whole town's full of liars who just have to get us. Ken, you already shot a man in the face and you're walking free. Why can't you count your blessings, pack up, and get out of Skidmore? I'll stay or go wherever I damn well please. <clears throat> you know what? Maybe I changed my mind about the gun. You shoot a man in the head with a rifle, he's not taking no witness stand. What do you think? It's not too late to give old Bo a pop in the head. Then I'll carve him up ass to neck like a turkey with the bayonet. <laughs> All right, Ken. Take the rest of your beer to go. You don't think I'd do it? I could shoot him right between the eyes and be back here drinking at the D&G Tavern the very next day, and there's nothing you, the law, or anyone else can do about it. Haven't you learned? I'm untouchable. Ken McElroy spent the majority of his adult life terrorizing the residents of the town of Skidmore in northwestern Missouri. 
From the 1960s to the early 1980s, he got away with multiple incidents of robbery, rape, and assault in the small 400-person town. Through slick lawyering and intimidation tactics, McElroy garnered a Teflon reputation when it came to the law. The justice system failed to convict McElroy on over 20 felony charges, leaving the people of Skidmore to live in fear while this bully walked their streets. Sometimes the murders we look into on this show are technically considered unsolved, even when the police are convinced of the perpetrator of the crime. It might be because there isn't enough evidence to charge a suspect, or because the accused escapes a guilty verdict at trial. For most of Ken McElroy's life, that's how his many crimes ended up unsolved. So when McElroy publicly joked that he might kill a local shopkeep, it wasn't entirely unbelievable that he might not only do it, but also get away with it. But this episode of Unsolved Murders isn't about the town bully that got away with murder. No, this episode is about the town that got away with murdering its bully. Because on July 10th, 1981, 10 days after making those threats in the local tavern, McElroy was shot dead in broad daylight. And despite dozens of witnesses on the scene, no one came forward to identify the shooter. Which is why to this day, not a single person has ever been charged with the murder of Ken McElroy. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Ken McElroy. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. So how exactly... Does a man who's gunned down in front of a crowd of witnesses end up in unsolved murder? There's an old joke about Texas that may as well apply to Skidmore, Missouri, in McElroy's case. An out-of-state lawyer goes up to the chief justice and asks, Why is it that out here you routinely hang horse thieves, but oftentimes let murderers go free? The chief justice replies, Because there never was a horse that needed stealing. Is it possible that after decades of tormenting the town of Skidmore, the residents thought McElroy had become a person who needed killing? To get a better idea of what might have been going on through the minds of the people of Skidmore on that hot summer day in 1981, let's take a look back at the life of Ken McElroy. Ken McElroy was born June 1, 1934 the 15th of what would be 16 children of Tony and Mabel McElroy. His parents were poor farmers who moved from eastern Kansas to the Ozarks and finally to northern Missouri looking for work. In the 1930s, Tony eventually found a tenant farming job and settled in Quitman, just six miles north of Skidmore. His salary was a dollar a day, and because he had healthy sons who could help out with the labor, he provided a real bargain for the owner. Not such a great bargain for the McElroy boys, though. For the first 13 years of Ken's life, he lived in someone else's house and worked on someone else's land while his family barely had enough to get by. You can imagine how that sort of childhood 
could make a man want to avoid that life for himself by any means necessary. Although he dropped out of school in the eighth grade, Ken found some financial success as well as camaraderie amongst local raccoon hunters. He garnered a reputation for his keen judgment of hunting dogs, which he could sell sight unseen for up to $300 a piece. But that wasn't enough for McElroy. Like coon hunting, his other, more lucrative activity took place at night. With the help of one of his hunting buddies, Ken perfected the art of stealing animals from the farms around Skidmore, a crime known as livestock rustling. How'd it go with the auction house, Chuck? Whiskey. Straight. Not bad, huh? Nothing good enough to replace your two steer that went missing? You mean that went stolen? Another. And yeah, there were two there that would have replaced mine perfectly. Because they were mine. And everyone knows it was Ken who stole them. Did you talk to the auction house? I yelled at the auction house. And know what they told me? Prove it. (sighs) Let's make that a double on the house. Because Missouri didn't require branding, McElroy was smart enough to steal unmarked livestock. And livestock wasn't the least of it. Other items began disappearing from homes and farms around the area. Gasoline, grain, alcohol, antiques, anything that could be sold. During one three-month period, it was estimated that over $100,000 worth of property had been stolen from local farmers. It was hardly a secret who was behind all of these thefts in Skidmore, but McElroy always managed to avoid arrest. To give you an idea of how that happened, one farmer who filed charges against Ken McElroy later withdrew them after Ken smashed the man across the face with a rifle. As if getting away with the crime wasn't enough, Ken's ego was far too big for him to keep quiet about it. Rubbing it in the faces of the people he stole from seemed to be half the thrill. Good evening, gentlemen. Ken? How much for a shot of your finest bourbon? Know what? I'll just buy the bottle. Jesus, Ken, you carry your money in a sack now? Can't fit all this in a wallet. You got change for a hundred? What are you staring at, Chuck? Never seen a bag of money before? That money belongs to me, you thieving son of a- I have no idea what you're talking about, but you look like you could use a drink. Go ahead, my treat. Screw you, Ken. See what I get for trying to be generous? Oh well, more for me. (laughs) Even law enforcement knew Ken McElroy was behind the thefts, but they couldn't be everywhere at once. Unless they caught Ken in the act, they couldn't pin the stolen livestock on him. His substantial earnings meant that he was able to pay off whomever he needed to look the other way at the auction houses, and he used a network of girlfriends to keep his name out of the sale records. McElroy convinced these women to put his stolen livestock up for auction under their own names so the animals couldn't be traced back to him. Then he'd stop by their homes a few days later to collect his earnings, have sex, and pay them a little something for their help. But McElroy's relationship with these women was anything but mutualistic. If his crimes had stopped at theft, 
He might have avoided the vigilante justice that ultimately caught up to him, but as McElroy's crimes escalated, he garnered a reputation for abusing women, or more accurately, girls. In his life, Ken McElroy married or shacked up with at least six girls between the ages of 12 and 16, some of them at the same time. In his younger days, McElroy was considered good-looking, with dark blue eyes and jet black hair. With the wealthy amassed selling stolen livestock, he easily lured young girls with gifts and rides in his truck. He preyed on girls from poor, uneducated families by hanging out around junior high playgrounds. Sometimes he befriended or even paid adolescent boys to introduce him to their female classmates. He was committing statutory rape with these girls, even when the courtship was consensual. But consent was not something McElroy was too concerned about. If he ever got into trouble with a girl or her parents, he got himself out of that trouble just as quickly by paying them off or threatening to hurt them. Those two tactics, payoffs and intimidation, were the tools Ken McElroy used throughout his life to keep from being held accountable for his actions. We want to warn listeners before we continue that the rest of this episode includes descriptions of rape and assault that some may find offensive. At 18, McElroy married his first wife, a 16-year-old girl named Oletta. But after a few years, he left her for the 15-year-old Sharon. But even as Sharon was pregnant with one of his children, he began grooming an even younger girl, a 13-year-old named Sally. Sally was a skinny, innocent girl with freckles and strawberry blonde hair. McElroy hunted coons with one of her brothers, which gave him an entree into her life. He started picking Sally up from school and buying her candy. As the two got closer, McElroy wanted Sally to move in and share his bed with Sharon, but Sally wasn't interested. Then one night, McElroy dumped Sally out of his car. She was discovered screaming, her clothes torn and bleeding so badly that she needed to be taken to the hospital. Whatever he did to her that night should have been enough to put Ken McElroy in jail. But he got to Sally and threatened to kill her father if she didn't do what he said. So not only was McElroy never charged with her assault, but a few days later, Sally moved into the house with him and Sharon. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. Ken McElroy continued to be abusive to both Sally and Sharon. He'd take turns raping them. Living with Ken was hell on earth for those young girls, but they were afraid to disobey him for fear of retaliation. Because of his hold over them, both physically and mentally, Sally and Sharon stayed with him long enough to have seven of his children. Then, as he had with Oletta before them, McElroy tired of Sharon and Sally and moved on to other, even younger girls. In 1964, Ken McElroy left Sharon and Skidmore along with their children and moved in with a 15-year-old girl named Alice Woods. But he didn't treat her any better than the previous girls. Despite McElroy's constant philandering, nothing but utmost loyalty was expected from Alice or else. As promised, here's your share of that thoroughbred we sold at auction. You mean that Alice sold at the auction? <laughs> what do you think, a cop's hiding behind that fence post? Hey, officer, we got two rustlers over here. 
been using other people's names to sell livestock. All right, all right. Keep it down. <laughs> it's just the two of us out here, dummy. There you go. You know, I saw Alice in town yesterday. She was wearing a bonnet or something. Is that some new fashion thing I should get for my girl? Only if your girl's missing a few inches of her scalp. Her scalp? Came home the other night and caught Alice packing a bag of clothes. Oh. I'm sorry, Ken. She's the one who's sorry now. I grabbed her by the head to tell her no girl's moving out on me, but her hair ripped right out of my hand and she went flying into the wall. How's she doing? She? My wall's the one with a bowling ball-sized hole that now I gotta pay someone to patch up. And you know the funniest part of the whole thing? Turns out she was just putting away laundry after all. Oh, well, the things we do for love, right? <laughs> As he did before with Sally, McElroy eventually invited a second woman to live with him and Alice. First, it was Marcia Sarit, but she would soon be replaced. McElroy was in his mid-30s when he preyed on another child, 12-year-old Trina McLeod. Their relationship became an open secret, and when Trina became pregnant, she dropped out of school and moved in with Ken and Alice. Both of the girls were miserable, so shortly after Trina gave birth, they made an escape. They took their children and fled to Trina's mother and stepfather's house. When McElroy found out, he was furious. He threatened to break inside the house and kill the two girls if they didn't return to him with his children. Scared for their lives, Alice and Trina gave in to his threats. Once home, McElroy beat Alice mercilessly, breaking her nose, both her cheekbones, and her brow. He then forced Trina at gunpoint to perform oral sex on him while her newborn baby lay on the couch right next to them. But that wasn't enough for Ken McElroy. It wasn't just Trina and Alice who had disrespected him. Trina's mother and stepfather also played a role, and Ken wasn't one to let a slight against him go by unpunished. He drove Trina back to her family's house while no one was at home and forced her to watch as he doused the place in gasoline and lit it on fire. Then, as she watched the only place she knew to get away from McElroy burn to the ground, Ken took a shotgun and killed the family dog right in front of her. A final punctuation to the whole traumatizing event. Two days later, at a doctor's appointment for her newborn son, Trina's physician picked up on her jumpy behavior and was able to draw out the story of what McElroy had done. The authorities were notified. Her child was placed into foster care, and Trina was hospitalized in order to keep McElroy away from her. Safe for the moment, Trina gave a statement under oath, describing everything he had done, from the beatings to the forced intercourse to the fire. Because of her testimony, Ken McElroy was arrested and charged with arson, assault, and rape. Unlike the lesser transgression of livestock rustling, these latest crimes endangered human life. And with Trina on the record as a witness to it all, it looked like the law might finally catch up with Ken McElroy. But he didn't have a Teflon reputation for nothing. And when this was all over, amazingly, not a single charge would stick and Ken McElroy would remain a free man. Any career criminal worth his salt knows that avoiding getting caught is only half the battle. The other half is getting out of trouble even when you have been caught, and that requires a good lawyer. Often one who's not too picky about the moral makeup of his clients. 
That's why Ken McElroy's first stop after getting out on bail was the law office of Richard Jean McFadden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Gene, you think you can get these charges kicked? Rape, arson, assault. It doesn't look good, Ken. But you can get it moved out of town like the other times, right? Delay the court date. Put a little distance between the, uh, alleged incidents. This isn't some prize pig you stole. I'll push for a change of venue, keep you out on bail as long as possible, but if this goes to trial... Uh, what would it take to get me out of it? I'll take the stand. Tell him Trina's full of crap. Lies all the time. Then it'll be he said, she said, where the she is an alleged victim of assault and rape, and the he is, well, no offense, Ken, but you. Hmm. So you're saying their whole case is built on her word? I suppose if Trina were to recant her testimony, you might have a shot. But as an officer of the court, I can't advise you to do anything illegal. No, 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 of course not. Why don't you just work on pushing that trial date? And don't you worry about me in the meantime. Sounds like a plan. Oh, uh, Ken, my usual fee is $5,000 per felony. Ah, uh, shoot. Sorry, Gene, how could I forget? Is cash okay? Thus began McElroy's intimidation campaign against Trina McLeod. Trina and her baby had been placed in the foster care of Ginger and George Clement in the nearby town of Maryville while the trial was pending. After several weeks without incident, it seemed like Trina might actually be free of Ken. But then one day, a car and driver showed up on the Clement Street. McElroy had found her. As soon as they saw him, the Clements called the police. Excuse me, sir. Can I ask what you're doing here? Officer, is there a problem with parking my car on a public street? You've been parked here for four hours. Some neighbors have complained. Complained about what? Exercising my rights in a free country? There's a family that feels your presence here is disturbing the peace. Peace, huh? Have I parked in their driveway? Well, no. Have I set foot on their lawn, knocked on their door, made any attempt to talk to them? Now, that's not what the complaint was about. It sounds to me like they're the ones disturbing my peace. Maybe I'll report them. You just keep to yourself, then. Consider this a warning. If you do anything illegal, I'll be back. You'll know where to find me, officer. Nowadays, we have laws to fight that sort of behavior. But this was 1973, and the first anti-stalking laws in the United States weren't created until the early 1990s. Since McElroy was parked on a public street, there was little else law enforcement could do, and that extended to his next form of intimidation as well. Tell my little bride I'm coming to get her. Somehow, McElroy got the Clements' home phone number and began a series of harassing calls. Once, he even threatened their own daughter. How about a trade? I know where your girls go to school and what bus they take. I think we ought to trade girl for girl, don't you? For their part, the Clements never gave in to McElroy's bullying, and during the time they fostered Trina, they were able to keep him away from her. For perhaps the first time in her life, Trina had a safe home with people who genuinely cared for her well-being. In that environment, 
Trina began to recover from the emotional damage McElroy had done to her. But at the end of the day, the Clements were still only foster parents. After Trina had been living with the Clements for about a year, a social worker informed them that Trina would be leaving and offered them no other explanation. Ginger Clement was worried that Trina wasn't psychologically ready to leave, but there was nothing that she could do to stop it. And Trina was transferred into the care of her grandparents in Whiting, Kansas. But without any other family or friends nearby, Trina felt totally abandoned. So after a couple months at her grandparents, she made a phone call to the one person she knew would come for her. Hey, Gene. Jesus, Kenny. You scared the hell out of me. I'd appreciate you checking in with my secretary next time. How'd my cases look? Tough. They're up to 12 counts against you. And what happens if I marry Trina? If you... I'm sorry, but how would that ever happen? <laughs> She's at my house right now. Called last week from Kansas begging me to come get her. Well, your wife can't be compelled to testify against you, so I suppose without Trina, they'd have no case. Except there's one problem. What's that? You're still married to Sharon. A few days later, Sharon, McElroy's estranged second wife, came to McFadden's office to formalize her divorce. But there was still one more hurdle to clear before Ken and Trina could be wed. Trina was still under the age of consent to marry in the state of Missouri. They needed a parent's permission. I have no idea what Trina's mother, Treva McNeely, was thinking when she signed the statement of consent. But at the same time, she also signed a statement that there was no coercion involved. And just like that, four days before the rape case against McElroy was set to go to trial, the victim and the accused became husband and wife. With the prosecution's only witness, now the wife of the defendant, the charges against McElroy were dropped. Even though several exceptions to spousal privilege could have applied to this case, the problem was more of a practical one than a legal one. Not only did marrying McElroy indicate to the prosecution that Trina would be an uncooperative witness, but she also gave a sworn statement that all of her previous accusations against McElroy were untrue. She claimed to have made them all up because she was jealous. Combined with his previous indictments, this now brought a total of 19 felony charges against McElroy that had been dismissed or ended in an acquittal because the prosecution lost their witness for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that reason was Ken McElroy. It's one thing to get away with attacking and raping young girls who can be easily overpowered, but after getting away with so much, McElroy must have felt invincible. So invincible that he moved on to bigger prey. In the late afternoon of July 27, 1976, Romaine Henry, a farmer in Skidmore, was working in his tool shop. Mr. Henry, did you hear that? Hear what? Gunshots. Gunshots? Where from? Sounded like the dirt road alongside the farm. Listen, you go back to the house. I'll check it out. Romaine Henry drove his truck around the farm until he saw what he knew to be Ken McElroy's green pickup parked alongside the road. Ah, oh, Jesus. Forget this. He decided McElroy wasn't worth the hassle and was headed back home when... 
Damn it, Ken. What are you doing with a shotgun in the middle of the road like that? I could have hit you. Look, whatever you're hunting out here, just get on with it and move along. Open the door, Romaine. There. Now, what is this all about? Were you the dirty son of a bitch over at my place in a white Pontiac? Jesus, Ken. Put that down. I got no idea what you're talking about. You're a lying son of a bitch. Blood splattered across the driver's side of the truck as Romaine took a shotgun blast to his stomach. Then McElroy aimed the gun at his face. What the? Romaine ducked just as the gun fired, but the shotgun pellets tore into his forehead and his cheek. He rolled out of the truck trying to escape. God damn it. The third shot missed, and as McElroy was reloading, Romaine climbed back into the truck and floored it out of there. He was on the verge of losing consciousness, but somehow managed to drive back to the house where his wife met him at the doorway. Oh my God, Romaine! We, what happened? We better get me to a doctor. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, the story continues. Romaine Henry had narrowly escaped with his life after being shot two times at close range. His wife rushed him to the hospital, where he was treated for powder burns, seven shotgun pellets in his abdominal wall, and lacerations to his forehead. Based on Romaine's statement to the police, Ken McElroy was arrested the next day and charged with felony assault with the intent to kill. In addition to Romaine's first-hand testimony, three other witnesses initially placed McElroy in the vicinity of Romaine's farm that afternoon. It seemed like a simple, open-and-shut case. But as with all things Ken McElroy, nothing is ever simple. The defense came up with two witnesses of their own. Two of McElroy's coon hunting buddies testified that they were with Ken at his house at the time of the shooting. McElroy's lawyer, Gene McFadden, used his old tricks to move and delay the trial. And with that extra time, Ken set to work with his own proven technique, intimidation. While awaiting trial, McElroy parked outside Romaine Henry's home at least 100 times. And once again, even though this was reported to the sheriff, nothing was ever done about it. McElroy gave the same treatment to the witnesses for the prosecution. One witness was so terrified that he moved his whole family all the way to Florida just to get away from Ken. Short Linville, another witness who initially said he saw McElroy at the farm that day, wanted Romaine to tell him the reason why McElroy shot him. He wanted to know if the rumor was true that Ken and Romaine had been involved with the same woman. But Romaine insisted that he had no idea why McElroy did what he did. When asked about it later, Linville said he thought Romaine was hiding something, and he had no interest in sticking his neck out for a guy who couldn't be honest with him. And so the prosecution lost another witness. The risks of publicly challenging Ken McElroy were just too high. And because of the contradicting witness testimonies, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. 
McElroy remained a free man. The town of Skidmore was shocked. There was no question in their minds who shot Romaine Henry. And once again, McElroy couldn't help but rub his acquittal in their faces. I thought I had the bastard shot deep enough that he'd die before he got home. <laughs> oh, well, maybe next time. And while we may never know exactly what motivated the shooting of Romaine Henry, with Ken McElroy, it wouldn't have taken much to set him off. Because we know that McElroy's next bloody attack all started over 10 cents worth of candy. Ernest Bo Bowenkamp and his wife Lois were an older couple who lived on the edge of Skidmore in a well-kept white house. They owned the B&B grocery that never made them rich, but afforded them enough to get by. At the age of 69, Bo was six foot five and weighed around 220 pounds. He was a gentle giant who favored listening to talking. He often worked behind the meat counter and kindly greeted the customers. Bo's wife Lois, 20 years younger than her husband, had a little more bristle to her, although some people perceived her as bossy. Most thought she was a genuinely decent person. On the afternoon of April 25, 1980, Lois and Bo were in the back of the store, and their employee, Evelyn Sumi, was working the cash register up front when two sisters, a teenager and a preschooler, entered. They shopped for a few minutes, and then the older girl returned to the counter with a candy bar and a bag of cookies, while the preschooler held a couple of pieces of bubble gum and a jawbreaker. Evelyn began to ring everything up at the register, when the teen handed her money for only part of the order. Evelyn assumed the girl wanted to pay for the other items separately, and gently reminded her of the candy in her sister's hand. That seemed to offend the older girl, so she put the candy back on the shelf in defiance and turned to leave. But while her back was turned, her little sister grabbed the candy again and started following her out of the store. When Evelyn pointed out that the child still had the candy in her hand, the older girl snapped. She ripped the candy from her sister's grip and yelled at Evelyn as she threw it back on the shelf. This caused her little sister to start crying before they stormed out. The commotion drew Lois to the front of the store, but before Evelyn could explain what had happened, a third sister by the name of Tammy entered. She was older than the other two, and she was furious. Tammy demanded her money back for the items that her sister had bought. As she understood it, Evelyn had accused her little sister of trying to raid the store, so she swore that her family would never shop there again. The older ladies tried to defuse the situation and explain what had really happened, but Tammy was having none of it. She continued to berate them for what she saw as an insult to her family. With nothing resolved, Tammy left the B&B grocery just as angry as when she'd walked in leaving Evelyn shaken from the tirade. I didn't know why she was so angry, Lois. I didn't accuse the child of anything. I know, Evelyn. What was all that about? Oh, oh, it was just some teenager. I guess we lost our whole family as customers. Who's her family? No idea. Who cares? Actually, Lois, you should care. Those three girls are Ken McElroy's daughters. Bo and Lois had never set eyes on Ken McElroy before, but 20 minutes later, they got their chance. That's Ken, all right. 
What's that he's got in his hand? Who's the boss around here? I am. And you can put that knife away. There's no need for that. Nobody tells me what to do. I have a right to stand here and clean my fingernails, don't I? I want to know which one of you bitches accused my kid of coming in this store and raiding it. I'll take both of you out in the street and whip your asses off. By 1980, Trina had been married to Ken for over six years. Gone was the innocent child who ran away to protect her baby. Trina had become hardened by the years of abuse and now stood by her husband's side. And while the confrontation that afternoon ended without incident, the Bowen camps were squarely in the sights of Ken McElroy's ire. And he wasn't alone this time. The evening of the candy incident, a caravan of three trucks drove slowly past the Bowen Camp's house, each with a gun in its rear window rack. Driving the trucks were Ken, Trina, and Ken's older daughter, Tammy. And that was just the start of it. As he did at Trina's foster home and Romaine Henry's farm, McElroy started regularly parking his vehicle outside the Bowen Camp's house and business. One time, McElroy actually confronted Lois and suggested that she and Trina settled the dispute with a street fight. He even scared the town marshal into agreeing to referee the thing. To the surprise of no one, Lois turned down the proposition. But every time the Bowen camps called for help, they got the brush off from the authorities. From what they could see, or chose to see, Ken hadn't done anything illegal, and he wasn't going to. But when Ken started firing a shotgun into the air as part of his nighttime routine outside the Bowen Camp's house, they reported it to Sheriff Roger Cronk in person. Sheriff Cronk told them he'd file a report and share it with the county prosecutor. But for whatever reason, that report was never filed, and no further investigation into the incident took place. July 8, 1980, was hot and muggy in Skidmore, and it just so happened to be the day that the air conditioner at the B&B grocery decided to quit working. So Bo went by the store after hours that evening and put himself to work breaking down old boxes at the loading dock while he waited for the repairman to show up. Uh, the broken unit's right over... Great. Bo? What do you want, Ken? I got business to do. You gonna call the police? Why? You gonna do something that needs the police? There's four kids watching us right across the street. You mean those boys headed into the tavern right now? Some generous fella just gave them five dollars to go buy whatever they wanted. See, some folks think I'm pretty nice, Bo. Well, those people are entitled to their opinion. And I'm entitled to mine. <laughs> you think you can talk to me like that? This is private property, okay? I want you off of it right now. And now you're telling me what to do. Fine. Like I want to waste any more of my evening in your miserable company. Just another Tuesday. I'm sorry. I forgot something. <sighs> What's that, Ken? McElroy shot Bo in the neck at close range and drove off. 
the nearly 70-year-old man collapsed on the ground just inside the doors of his shop. By the time someone from the nearby tavern dared to venture inside the B&B grocery to see what had happened, Bo's body was already sitting in a pool of blood, his mouth agape, with two shotgun pellet holes ripped into his neck. Oh God, I think he's dead. McElroy made sure that no one was around when he pulled the trigger and left the scene before anyone arrived. So even though the people of Skidmore knew exactly who had fired at Bo Bowen Camp, no one else actually saw the shooting. They must have felt like the bully who had already gotten away with robbery, rape, assault, and shooting a man was finally going to get away with cold-blooded murder. But they were wrong. Because Ken McElroy would not get away with this latest crime. And this latest crime wasn't murder. <gasps> Mr. Bowencamp? Get help. Get help. <coughs> Next week, we'll tell you how the law finally caught up to Ken McElroy, but it was too little, too late for the people of Skidmore. Because before McElroy served one day of his sentence behind bars, he was shot dead. And like the Teflon bully himself, his killer, or killers, were never punished for the crime. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the murder of Ken McElroy. We'd like to thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jeremy Spenson and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto. <laughs>